Hello and welcome to the fifth neuroscience podcast with the expert Dr. Phil Newton and me, Dr. Sam Webster. What are we going to talk about today, Phil? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, drug addiction. Not movement then. Didn't you say we were going to do movement? <laughs> uh, we, we, may, we may have proposed to talk about movement, but um, we haven't. Drug addiction it is then. Uh, there is some movement involved in drug addiction. Yeah? Tremors? Yeah. Finding yeah. a vein? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about movement next time. Okay. Maybe we should explain to our listener that uh, we don't have a script and we make this up as we go along. Just as a cab, you know, as an excuse in case we say something wrong. All right, we're going to talk about addiction, Samuel. Okay. Why don't we start by you telling me what you think addiction is? Sure. Uh, a drug addiction is where a body uh, gets used to a drug, and when you take that drug away, it's not very nice. Right. Therein, ladies and gentlemen, we have, as discussed in the lecture, the classic popular science media presentation of what addiction is. As an anatomist, I'd like to take the default dumb position on this podcast. I never said it was dumb. You grew up watching Grange Hill and Trainspotting just like everybody else. Oh, don't bring Zamo into this. Remember the demographic. You're the demographic today, Sam. Okay, you can bring Zamo into it. Um, okay, so what is addiction? Well, so what we'll do, I think, is we'll... To make the podcast slightly more interesting, we'll just talk about some of the general concepts involved in addiction and uh, <coughs> associated phenomena. In the lecture, I went through all the different drugs of abuse one by one and had to talk about how they worked and all the rest of it. Uh, that would be a little tedious for the podcast. So let's just talk about the big picture. And we'll start with defining addiction. So as far as you're concerned, as far as you understand, addiction is you take too much of a drug your body becomes used to it and therefore you have to keep taking it in order to stop becoming sick or in order to function normal, normally. Yeah, you get some signs and symptoms uh, when you're withdrawing that right. drug. So what you have described is what we would, uh, in the addiction field, describe as dependence. It's a purely, um, almost purely physical phenomenon. And it... <laughs> <laughs> Sam Clunks, yes. We, maybe we'll uh, talk about caffeine addiction if we have time. Beautiful sound effect. So um, there are four key things you need to know about addiction. Four key concepts that we're going to spend a bit of time at the beginning talking about. The first two are tolerance and dependence. All tolerance right. and dependence. Yes. So your definition of an addict is someone who has become very tolerant to a particular drug. Yeah. Tolerance and dependence sound along the lines of what I was talking about. They are very related concepts. So many drugs, you take them uh, chronically and you become tolerant to them. Uh, therefore, meaning you function normally in the presence of them. And then when you take them away, you express a withdrawal syndrome. Now, that occurs for alcohol, occurs for opiates, things like heroin, it occurs for nicotine and uh, benzodiazepines, things like Valium. It does not occur for many addictive drugs, the most obvious example being something like cocaine. Oh, really? Indeed. So someone who takes cocaine chronically does not become physically tolerant to its effects. And in fact, there is a school of thought suggesting that many of the effects of cocaine become stronger the more a person takes them. Hmm, there's no dependency. It's just a case of wanting more. Is that right? Well, what this means is that obviously you can become addicted to cocaine. Uh, you take cocaine for a long time, you don't become tolerant, and if you stop taking it, you don't have a physical withdrawal syndrome. You know, you don't get the shakes or or whatever. But you uh, obviously become addicted. Some people become addicted, I should say. And the definition of addiction is very simply someone who takes a recreational drug, abuses a drug, decides that they want to stop and finds that they can't. Even though they want to and they're conscious of the fact that they should for whatever reason. The dictionary definition of addiction is continued drug use despite known adverse consequences. So uh, an addict is someone who says, all right, I'm going to stop taking cocaine, 
because it's illegal and it's costing me too much money and my spouse is threatening to leave me. And they try and stop and they can't. So they carry on taking cocaine even though they know it's going to have all these bad effects on their life and it's addictive and all the rest of it. Is it known why this occurs? There there are many hypotheses as to why that occurs. Okay. And we will, talk, we will talk about a couple of them, yes. Um, You're not going to pick on me too much then about caffeine and endorphins I, and that sort of thing then? I will probably pick on you quite extensively when we... <sighs> When we yeah. Oh yeah, it's for the flapjacks. <laughs> the flapjack will be an essential part of the picking on process. Okay. There is one, so that's tolerance, dependence, addiction, and there's one other thing we should mention at the beginning, and that's relapse. Okay, so in the, the understanding of addiction we talked about at the very beginning, um, the person has to keep taking drug to avoid going through withdrawal. They can get through withdrawal fairly easily, not very nice. And in the case of alcohol withdrawal, it is uh, um, many times fatal. Uh, but in clinically managed setting, you can get through those withdrawal sim- uh, symptoms and they generally take no more than a couple of weeks. Relapse is when someone has got clean, as it were, and is free from drugs, is not using drugs uh, despite known consequences. But then at some point, weeks, months or years after they have stopped, for some reason, they start taking drugs again. And that is one of the defining features of addiction. Now, they're all important, even though only one, two of them really uh, characterize addiction. So we're going to talk, first of all, about tolerance and physical dependence. All right? And we're going to use alcohol as the example. Good, good. I don't drink much alcohol. You don't? No. Why not? I don't know. Oh, because... Uh, <laughs> uh, I've got a very acidic stomach, so drinking lots of wine, lots of beer makes me feel poorly these days, which isn't very nice. Oh dear. So yeah, I become, I, I associate pain with alcohol. So, God. However, good whiskey, good German beer, I'm all right with that. Also, cheap poxy Australian lager. But let's not talk about that. What? So, do we? Do you know what alcohol is doing to your brain? as you were consuming your, your sophisticated whiskey or your cheap Australian lager? No. Did we not talk about this? I think we did. This is why I've got an inkling. Of, I've got a feeling somebody's told me about this. Was, I, was it a podcast I was sleeping through? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, if, no, I think we did. We talked about either that or I read about it. If you slept through it while we made the podcast, there's every likelihood that the, uh, our listener slept through the podcast when we uh when he she was supposed to be listening to it all right so alcohol what alcohol does is loads of things mm. all right alcohol is is dirty it's weak alcohol hits everything doesn't it, it rather does than indeed. just speci- yeah see see some of it's yeah, coming back yeah, yeah good go man on. good man so it does it does loads of things there's no alcohol receptor yeah there's no uh commonly agreed upon mechanism by which alcohol produces drunkenness. Right. Even though it has been consumed by humans since the dawn of time. Well, the dawn of civilization, should we say. Um, There's a good debate. What's more, what, what's defined the start of civilization? Was it fire or was it alcohol? Uh, I suspect <laughs> that is something we should leave to a medicine, health and society session. There should be a lecture on that if there isn't already. It's not very medically important though, is it? Okay, so you've lost me now. All right, <laughs> alcohol's been around for yonks. We've been abusing it for forever, and but we don't know how it works. We do know that lots of things that it does do. We know some of them are important. Right. One of the things it does, and this is a little test for you, uh-huh. is it makes your GABA receptors work a little bit better. Now, do you remember what GABA receptors do? No. Okay, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Yeah. And it binds to GABA receptors, which are, um, at least the GABA-A receptor is a, a voltage-gated, let me start again, a ligand-gated chloride channel. Yeah. So GABA binds to a GABA-A receptor, chloride floods into the, the neuron, and it becomes hyperpolarized and less likely to fire an action potential. Right. Remember all that? It's coming back. So what alcohol does is it makes GABA work more efficiently at GABA-A receptors. Yeah. So it potentiates inhibition. 
So it shuts down neurons. Down that. Yeah. The other thing that it does is it inhibits NMDA receptors. Okay. NMDA receptors are a major receptor type for the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. Uh-huh. Remember glutamate? I remember glutamate. Probably does. Okay, so <laughs> what glutamate does is is the opposite to GABA. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter. Uh, it increases the likelihood that a neuron will fire an action potential. Uh-huh. Okay, so alcohol potentiates the inhibitory effects of GABA and blocks the excitatory effects of glutamate. Double whammy. Exactly. Does loads of other things, but those two are they'll do for now at least. Okay. So <clears throat> what happens when you drink alcohol? is that is your uh, overall neuronal excitability gets shut down. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, but it certainly will, will work from a clear, uh, clinical understanding. And what your, your GABA receptors do and your NMDA receptors do is they realize fairly quickly that they, their function is being altered by alcohol. Yeah. And they adjust accordingly. Hey, that's clever. They are pretty smart things. So your GABA receptors work a bit too well, so they adjust their function so they work less efficiently and they reduce their abundance so there are fewer of them. Huh. Your NMDA receptors increase in abundance and increase in efficiency yeah. very crudely so that overall your brain can work when you have alcohol on board. Good. And that produces tolerance. Oh, I see. Yeah. Ah. A little light's gone on above it's his head, a... ladies and gentlemen. Bing. So that is how someone who is a very chronic alcoholic is able to, to function apparently normally despite having a very high blood alcohol concentration. And the example I used in the lecture was a 24-year-old woman who was admitted to accident and emergency in Los Angeles with a blood alcohol concentration of 1.5%. 1.5%. Yeah, so her blood is basically weak beer. Bloody hell. And that is 19 times the legal limit and three times the amount that would kill me. Yes. Are we allowed to swear? Yes, our podcast. Wow. I, I, I shall, I, shall, I, shall I edit that for? Crikey. Core blimey. Really? So one percent. Yeah. So she was she was incredibly drunk, and yet when she presented in the emergency room, uh, she had abdominal pain, mm. and that was it. Why did she go to accident in the emergency? That, that is an interesting question. I think because of her abdominal pain, and because her, her only other described symptoms were that she was agitated and slightly confused. But she knew who she was. She was responsive to questioning, oriented to person and place. And her neurologic examination showed slightly depressed reflexes. <laughs> That's a good example. I like that one. That, that is tolerance and action, ladies wow. and gentlemen. Uh, she was the, uh, the world record holder, though she has been beaten a couple of times recently, I think. Um, so she's tolerant. That is tolerance and action. And that is what we generally understand... Uh, tolerance to be someone who's taken the drug loads and loads and loads for a long period of time I think this woman was drinking a bottle of whiskey a day and they become very resistant to the effects of the drug yeah what you may not be aware of mm, uh, probably not no even a man as learned as yourself uh-huh. uh, may not be aware that this process that produces this tolerance these processes I should say they occur very rapidly Okay, they occur even when you have two or three drinks. How rapidly? So while you're drinking? While you're drinking. Of an evening? Of an evening. Have you ever heard the phrase, I drank myself sober? Done it. Exactly, good man. The students would admit to having done that when I asked them in the lecture. They wouldn't admit. They wouldn't admit, no. I haven't done it for a long time, but I've done it. So you've drunk 15 pints? Yeah, it was well over 10 pints. It was ridiculous, man. You start feeling better. And you start feeling better, exactly. Yeah. That's because you have become acutely tolerant to alcohol. Probably not a good thing. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it, it's not good for a number of reasons. Obviously, you're not going to feel very well when you stop drinking, and we'll talk yeah. about that in a second. But 
from a from the point of view of our students who are going to be working in accident emergency rooms are going to see patients presenting who have drunk 15 pints but actually yeah. don't seem too unwell yeah. and that's because they're acutely tolerant and their blood alcohol concentration is going to be through the roof uh obviously also from a legal perspective you might uh at the end of a long day or even the the following morning after a very heavy session of drinking think oh, i feel fine and functionally you are fine but in the eyes of the law you most yeah. certainly are not oh, right. so uh don't drive early in the morning after a long night of drinking just because you seem okay just because you seem okay and and from a functional perspective you are okay the uh the officer who stops you will not be impressed with the but i'm fine mate i'm acutely tolerant <laughs> it's probably let me explain <laughs> <laughs> let me explain what has happened to my gaba receptors and my nmda receptors not gonna go down is it no all right so your alcohol pushes the function of your nmda receptors and your gaba receptors in a particular direction right yeah and those receptors then push back yeah. so that with alcohol on board, they can function they can normally. Function. Yep. And for those who are interested, the nature of these adaptions is things like changes in their phosphorylation status, changes in their affinity for uh, neurotransmitters, the simple number of receptors, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, all right, so alcohol pushes you one way, the receptors push back. Yeah. Then when you stop taking alcohol, you stop drinking, uh, yeah. then the receptors have pushed will push a little bit too far. And that, very simply, is why you have a withdrawal syndrome. Okay. Okay, and that's why, one of the reasons why you feel uh, rather unwell the day after you've been out drinking. Okay, so a hangover is very simply a mild case of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And in the case of someone like our, our record-breaking woman, who's 19 times over the legal limit, when she stops drinking, those changes are going to be uh, exposed you know, the, and their, their effect is going to be so serious that they may actually kill her. Okay, so she's going to have crappy GABA receptors and far fewer of them, way too many NMDA receptors that work yeah. too well. You're going to have very simply the opposite effect of alcohol itself. Yeah. Okay, because alcohol's pushed one way, the receptors are pushed back, and you get the opposite effect. Uh, so, if like me, when you have a hangover, you find you can't really sleep and you feel a little bit agitated, um, that's the opposite of the effects of alcohol. Right. Okay. And the very serious withdrawal syndrome, delirium tremens, DTs, uh, people will hallucinate. They'll be um, have sympathetic hyperactivity, and they may even die. The neurons are firing like mad. Everything's going bonkers. Yeah. So if we think about how that process has arisen, there's a very simple solution acutely to preventing alcohol withdrawal or even a hangover. There is? Yeah. And it's not drinking some milk to line your stomach before you go out then? Uh, that, that would be a prophylactic <laughs> measure. I know. But how would you stop you? All right. So th let's think about this, okay? Yeah. The changes that have occurred. Is it, is, is it something to do with kebabs? <laughs> no oh, right. not quite uh, think about the next morning yeah all right the more ambitious of your friends after a heavy night's drinking yeah. what do they tell you is the best way to feel better hair of the dog exactly so the hair of the dog works very well because it addresses everything that we've just talked about it pushes the balance of uh, the system between alcohol and your neuroadaptions back towards normal and you can let yourself down a little bit more gently. Sure, makes sense. Not but advised, that, though. It's probably not a good idea, though, is it? That's going to lead you towards going to A&E with 1.5% alcohol in your blood. Uh, it's, it's not advised for a number of reasons, and there is, despite everything I said earlier, there is a school of thought that says such uh, processes acutely lead to the maintenance of addiction. So an alcoholic goes to bed thinking, tomorrow I kick. I quit, I kick alcohol, and it wakes up the next morning, feels dreadful, says, well, I'll feel better if I have a couple of drinks. Yeah. And on you go. Yeah. Um, so in the clinic, one would use benzodiazepines. Okay. Because benzodiazepines potentiate the function of, of GABA receptors. Okay, so they do... Oh, yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? They do what alcohol, one of the things that alcohol does. So okay. um, they're sort of a substitution therapy. 
and you can obviously control them a little bit better. Is that enough? It's enough to get you through. It's enough to get, yes, it's enough to get you through withdrawal. You probably still won't feel very well, but uh, you are much less likely to die. And that's uh, an important outcome. Yeah, that's a good tip. That is tolerance and withdrawal. And that is most of what we need to say about alcohol, though we will come back to it again at the very end um, when we talk about your flapjack. Okay. I have a much better understanding of, of tolerance and withdrawal now. I'm glad. Good. Uh, we should, uh, in the interest of completeness, talk about treatments for alcoholism because the Royal College of Psychiatrists wants our students to know a lot about alcohol mm, and sense. cannabis. Um, there are three... <laughs> I what? think that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Does it? Students must know about alcohol and cannabis. These are medical students, not state students generally, but our medical students must know about it. About the abuse of. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are treatments available for uh, the unfortunate person who becomes addicted to alcohol. And uh, they are, the first of them, perhaps the best described is a drug called naltrexone. And what naltrexone does is it blocks uh, the action of your opioid receptors. Ah. Okay. One of the things that alcohol does is, in addition to monkeying about with uh, NMDA and GABA receptors, is it stimulates the release of endogenous opioids. So that runner's high, which you crave so yeah. badly, Dr. Webster, that is caused by things like endorphins. Yeah. Alcohol stimulates the production of those very acutely. And if you were to imagine having been in the pub on a Friday night for just a drink or two, yeah. you get that nice warm glow and yeah. all is well with the world. Vaguely remember it. Endorphins. And there is a theory that these contribute to some of the addictive properties of alcohol. And if you block their effect, then you can treat alcoholism. It doesn't work very well. Uh, but it does work to a certain extent. Um, the other uh, pharmacological reagent that is often prescribed to treat alcohol is called camprosate, and it is an MDA receptor antagonist as well as doing a few other things, and it doesn't work very well to treat alcoholism. Oh. And behavioral therapy is often used to treat alcoholics. The naltrexone and camprosate? A camprosate, yes. A-camprosate. I, think it's on the, I think it's marketed as camprow. But neither of them work very well. Neither of them work very well. Uh, behavioral therapy also doesn't work very well. If you mix the three things together, they work slightly better than not very well. Okay. Um, so overall, the picture is that there are treatments available. They do work for some alcoholics, but overall, there's, you know, there's nothing that's particularly good. Ah. One of the reasons for that, which is something we didn't have time to talk about in the lecture, is that... Uh, one person's alcoholic is another person's student out on a Friday night. Okay, an alcoholic is, the definition of alcoholic is very heterogeneous. There are a number of different subtypes of alcoholic. And it's worth mentioning briefly one of the classifications, which is uh, that proposed by a gentleman. I think it was a gentleman. Oh, it's a little sexist of me, isn't it, to assume it was a gentleman? Yeah. A person, a scientist called Cloninger, <clears throat> who uh, broke al- alcoholics down into two main categories. Type 1, uh, alcoholics are people who come to alcoholism a bit later in life. A classic example of a type 1 alcoholic is uh, someone with a very stressful job and a less than desirable home life who comes home after a crap day, gets it in the neck from the family, has a couple of drinks and feels a bit better. Yeah. And does this again and again and eventually their drinking becomes problematic right and their drinking is driven by principles of reward dependence and harm avoidance all right so you start using alcohol as a crutch and it becomes problematic they are easier to treat than type 2 alcoholics typical type 2 alcoholic would be a young male about the age of a student someone who say goes to all the freshest parties in the first year and all the freshest parties in the second year, and all the freshest parties in the third year, and his mates say to him, look, you really should stop drinking, and he finds that he can't. Uh, It's a much more heritable type of alcoholism. It's a very male type of alcoholism. generally involves drinking a lot more than type 1 alcoholism, and it's much more difficult to treat. And it's associated with people who are novelty-seeking and uh, have problems controlling their impulses. Right. Uh, so I thought I should mention that because yep. we didn't have time to. All right. So that's everything we need to say about booze. Everything. 
Done. Mm, well, we'll come, like I said, we'll come back to it briefly at the end. Okay, good. Um, all right. Next. Next, we will talk about nicotine. Nicotine. Remember nicotine? Yeah. <laughs> he said, completely yeah. unconvincingly. <laughs> we talked a lot about nicotine in one of our podcasts. We did, yeah. We did? Yeah. What did we say? I remember having effects on particular receptors. Were they muscarinic receptors or nicotinic receptors? There you go. Yeah, we talked about those, weren't we? So we talked about effects on the heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, good man, good man. Our students, of course, will have been jumping up and down saying, I know the answer to this. Um, nicotinic receptors, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are on postganglionic neurons. Mm-hmm. in the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And they uh, mediate the effects of acetylcholine, which is released from the preganglionic neurons, and very simply explain why nicotine has effects on heart rate, on lung function, on all sorts of autonomic um, systems. Yep. Uh, there are also nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in the brain, <clears throat> and they do lots of things, like make you become addicted to nicotine, Uh, they're important for cognition they're and cholinergic neurons are some of those that die the earliest in alzheimer's disease and we use cholinesterase inhibitors to treat alzheimer's yep to increase the abundance of uh, acetylcholine and for reasons that aren't entirely clear the vast majority of people with schizophrenia are very heavy smokers and Mm. there are theories around uh it making alleviating some of their negative symptoms and also nicotine is something of a cognitive enhancer and a lot of the symptoms of schizophrenia are cognitive in nature and it may simply enable their cognition to function better. Oh, really? Indeed. There are loads and loads of different subtypes of nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. I think it's got it's got a few different subunits. There are multiple different isoforms of each subunit so you get lots of heterogeneity which explains why nicotine does some things uh, more efficiently at certain subtypes of nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. We don't need to worry about that too much. Is it quite well understood, all that? It's fairly well understood, yes. Right. And were the students to go to the uh, textbook chapter that I recommended at the end of the lecture, they will find it in more detail. Right. Now, nicotine is useful uh, as a teaching tool for me to teach you, Dr. Webster, yeah. about the phenomenon of replacement therapy. Oh, okay. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. Is it where you replace something with something else? Yeah, it is. Is it, where, it is indeed. For example, somebody's addicted to nicotine, you then replace it with, with something else, I'm guessing. Almost. Almost. Well, in this purest sense, I suppose, yes, it is. Um, you're going to go far. You're not talking about like smoking one of them plastic cigarettes then? Not that sort of replacement therapy? E- almost, yes. That is... That's a behavioural thing, isn't it? Uh, it is, and it also means that you get just nicotine and not the tar and arsenic <laughs> and all the other horrendous things that are in tobacco. You're sucking on a plastic pen with nicotine in it. Yes. Right. Um, the other thing that uh, related to that, what people who are addicted to nicotine often do, is apply a nicotine patch. Yes. Or chew nicotine gum. Yes. And that is one of the types of replacement therapy. Okay, so you're getting the nicotine, not all the harmful stuff. You're getting the nicotine. You're not getting all the all the the, uh, the carcinogenic compounds, but nicotine is really the thing that is the most addictive. So would nicotine patches help me with my cognition on like a Monday morning when I'm teaching anatomy? Uh, for in the interest of not being sued, <laughs> I'm going to say no. Right, I won't try that then. I, I wouldn't recommend it, no. For a drug to be addictive, and this applies to to any drug, its effects have to come on very quickly and generally go off very quickly and not last a very long time. Okay. Okay. The, the, the better a drug fits that profile, generally the more addictive it is. Right. Okay. So when you smoke a cigarette, when one were to, if one were to smoke a cigarette... Because it gets straight into the lungs, which are heavily, obviously, heavily vascularized. I mean, a lot of blood spilling around in there. 
uh, yeah. it gets to your brain very quickly. Yeah. And it goes away. It's metabolized very quickly. So you get a nice sharp spike in the concentration of nicotine in your brain. That is one of the, the properties of nicotine that makes it addictive. Quick hit. Exactly. When you slap on the nicotine patch, transdermal delivery is obviously a lot slower yeah. than, uh, what's the technical term for, for smoking? Is there, is there a medical inhaled drug? You know, must, come on, you're an anatomist. I mean, yeah, don't do drugs. I just do bits of the body. An inhaled drug. Well, it would be. An inhaled route of administration. I mean, what, when, you, when you take salbutamol, what's the term? You inhale it. All right, I'm sure it's our students inhaling. are tearing their hair out because <laughs> they already know the answer. Anyway, all right, so you, when you inhale a drug or when you inject a drug intravenously, it gets in a lot quicker compared to uh, something which is uh, through a patch, transdermally, or something which uh, is in gum, which is obviously released a lot more slowly. Chewing tobacco. Yeah. That's still fairly addictive, gets in fairly quickly. Yeah. Interestingly, is are, are um, designed to be fairly abrasive, so you get lots of little cuts in your gums as really? you're chewing it, so that it gets into your blood a bit quicker. Ew, it's lovely, isn't it? Ugh. Snuff. Yeah, it's uh, whatever the technical term for snorted gets in fairly quickly. Still fairly addictive, despite it being incredibly aversive. Um, so yeah, the point is, addictive drugs off and on very quickly. If you replace them with a drug that acts much more slowly, then uh, you can stabilize uh, an addict's physical status. All right, so a heroin addict intravenously administers uh, heroin, gets into the brain very quickly, comes off very quickly, and you get a nice sharp spike. Orally uh, administered methadone comes off and on a lot more slowly. Right. So in theory, stabilizes their physical status. Yeah. So they don't have these up and down um, uh, feelings of, of the high and then the withdrawal. Okay. Um, it doesn't work very well, though. Why is that? Because it addresses the dependence only. All right, remember we said that dependence is fairly easy to treat. Yeah. The physical off and on is fairly straightforward to deal with. The psychological uh, component to addiction, the craving, the, the compulsion, the need to keep taking drugs even though you don't want to, doesn't really have anything to do with it because it still occurs after physical withdrawal syndromes have uh, resolved themselves. So you stabilizing that physical withdrawal syndrome doesn't really have any effect on whether or not you're craving the drug. Uh, yeah? yeah, sure. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm losing him, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, I just slowly got it. You did? Yeah. The light came so on not via that, a dimmer switch. Yeah, so it's not that big a solution, is it? It's not. Um, and to put our podcast into historical context, I think the drug the government has today announced a change to drug policy oh, yeah. to try and encourage abstinence and um, move away from uh, methadone and replacement therapy and things like that. Oh, right, okay. <coughs> Cutting edge. So we've done, we've done booze. We've done nicotine, we've done tolerance, dependence, we've done a bit about addiction, we've done withdrawal. We should talk briefly about psychostimulants. We won't go through every drug individually. Um, psychostimulant, that mean anything to you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, not really. That means no, ladies and gentlemen. I understand the, the I think I understand the drugs you're on about. When I say ladies and gentlemen, that implies that there are multiple of each gender listening, doesn't it? Yeah, well, when exams are approaching, there probably will be other times of the year, unlikely. I think, I think we've only got one listener. Yeah. And I suspect it's female. My mum. <laughs> well, if she can put five stars on the iTunes rating, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, I have to explain to her how iTunes works. I don't mean it, mum. All right, so psychostimulants are things like amphetamines, cocaine, methamphetamine, all those um, nasty white powders that uh, s provide stimulation. Mm -hmm. And conceptually, they are important because, first of all, 
there is no real withdrawal syndrome. First of all, so how would you define a psychostimulant? Do they have a definition? They probably do. Okay. Do I know what it is in terms of uh, a formal description? No. Um, because things like caffeine are obviously stimulant, but I don't think they're classified as psychostimulants. So I don't know. I, I am uh, hoping that none of my addiction researcher companions are ever going to listen to this. That was why I was interested because we've been talking about stimulants, but I'm sure medical students understand the drugs that we're on about, the types of drugs. Let's, let's hope so. Whether you're on about anyway. No, no, this is an interactive process, Samuel. I keep telling you. All right, so they're important because there's no withdrawal syndrome. We talked about this very briefly. Um, they obviously are addictive. They have potent acute effects, um, but you wouldn't ever say that someone is going through cocaine withdrawal, for example. Yeah. There are effects associated with suddenly terminating chronic psychostimulant use, and once again, they are generally the opposite of the effects of the drug. So someone who suddenly stops taking amphetamines will feel very tired, will feel ravenously hungry because it's an appetite suppressant, and um, may feel, uh, the term I think is mental depression, because obviously oh. amphetamine makes one feel more alert. Uh, another perhaps important thing about psychostimulants is that they were, um, for many years, fairly legal. Uh, amphetamines given to a variety of people to make them work harder, faster, longer. Yeah. Churchill, big fan of yeah. amphetamines, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Judy Garland was the example I used in the lecture. Yeah. Appetite suppressants and uh, stimulants. Cocaine. You know why it's called? We know why Coca-Cola is called Coca-Cola. Because it had cocaine in it originally. It, it did indeed. Um, was used as a topical anesthetic. Um, methamphetamine. Know anything about that? Not really. It's horrible stuff. It's like speed on speed. <laughs> oh, wow. I just made that up. I'm quite proud. I'm quite pleased with that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, yeah, stronger, nastier, more addictive. Um, Hitler, big fan. Methamphetamine. Oh, right. Injected into his buttocks twice a day by his personal physician. Wow, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. He was, uh, he was, he was a bit mad as well. Was he? Mm. Really? There may be a link there. You heard it here first. Hitler, mad, maybe. Uh, so, yeah, um, and also, despite that, is occasionally used clinically for things like uh, ADHD and obesity. It was. No, it is. It is. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I know. All right, so not much to say about them. Uh, hallucinogens, we, we won't really talk about except to say that they are not really addictive. LSD and uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, by pretty much any measure, not addictive. Uh, MDMA, ecstasy, is uh, whether or not that is addictive is a controversial issue, probably more for political reasons than medical ones. It's certainly nowhere near as addictive as anything else we've talked about so far. And that may be uh, explained by hallucinogens having more of an effect on serotonergic mechanisms. So LSD and psilocybin mess around with uh, serotonin receptors. They're agonists at serotonin receptors. MDMA uh, has an affinity for the serotonin transporter, produces an increase in the abundance of serotonin, and the user feels uh, a bit better about oh, life. Okay, nice. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned that psychostimulants, amphetamine and cocaine um, work more at the dopamine and noradrenaline transporters increase the abundance of dopamine and noradrenaline. That's why um, they produce their stimulant effects. Um, should we talk about cannabis? Yeah. He said, with renewed enthusiasm, thinking that this might involve a discussion of appetite and therefore lead him closer to the flapjack that's been on the table for the last hour. I hadn't made that leap yet, actually, but go on. Um, cannabis. It's a retrograde neurotransmitter. Well, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, delta-9 THC, active ingredient in cannabis, retrograde neurotransmitter, acts at CB1 receptors. We talked about it in week 111. Um, I don't really know what to tell you about cannabis. It's not scientifically very interesting. Oh, really? No. It's, uh, is it addictive? Has anybody decided? Oh, people have probably decided both ways, have they? Pretty much, yeah. 
there are certainly people who have problems stopping using cannabis, but it certainly isn't as addictive as uh, as nicotine or cocaine or, or heroin. Um, there is uh, some literature about cannabis being a gateway drug. Uh, I people who eventually become heroin addicts started out smoking cannabis. Um, there is some truth to that, I think, from what I can tell in the literature, although that's it's more a environmental um, cause than a you know a molecular effect. Uh, cannabis users become very tolerant. Oh wow, that's gonna get <laughs> expensive then. I'm losing him again. Uh, user, I mean not user. That's one of our podcast listener as a user. No, I'm still here. Um, they become very tolerant, but they don't show withdrawal. Why is that, Doctor Webster? Uh. Because THC is very fat soluble. Oh, obviously. Bloody hell, I should have known that. You should. And it's a disappointment to us all that you didn't. THC is very fat-soluble. So if you're someone that smokes a lot of cannabis, you, as we discussed in week 111, get the munchies, you eat a lot of junk food, you've got plenty of fat to store the THC. So when you suddenly stop smoking cannabis, there's a lot of THC swelling around in your adipose tissue that slowly leaches out of the adipose tissue and provides you with a very gentle letdown from your chronic cannabis use. Oh, that's nice. So you don't have withdrawal. Were you to inject a heavy cannabis user with, or inject, administer to a heavy cannabis user um, a cannabinoid receptor antagonist, mm. then they would have a very unfortunate and unpleasant withdrawal syndrome, very much bad. like opiates withdrawal. Yeah. Oh, okay. What do you think about that? Nice. <laughs> nice? You think that's nice? Yeah. Glazed look over his eyes. Uh, one other thing to say about cannabis, and Perhaps the most important thing is there is a um, well-defined but uh, oft ignored, I think, link between heavy cannabis use and the precipitation of underlying mental illness. Oh, uh, Young men who smoke lots of cannabis uh, are more likely to be schizophrenic than young men who don't smoke lots of cannabis. It's not entirely clear whether smoking lots of cannabis causes schizophrenia or people with schizophrenia derive some benefit from smoking lots of cannabis. But um, there is a correlation. Mm. And there are genetic variants in the cannabinoid receptor that are associated with um, schizophrenia. Okay. Is cannabis then a quick hit? Or is it a slow hit? In many ways, yes, it is. All right. But so is salbutamol. Is salbutamol addictive? Which doesn't make me feel particularly good. The key thing about addictive drugs is that in addition to having this pharmacokinetic profile, which we've talked about, yeah. of coming off and on quickly and not lasting very long, they all act at the mesolimbic dopamine system. And they all act to increase the abundance of neurotransmitted dopamine in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. Now, in week 111, we talked about dopamine. Do you remember? Was I there? When we recorded the podcast. Right, okay. We did, yeah, we have talked about dopamine, yeah, sure. Uh, I can't remember exactly what we said. Um, but if we say exactly the same things as we said then, then it's revision, isn't it? Yes. So. Kind of revision of revision as the podcast is already a revision of the lecture. But, you know, if it's important, we should reiterate. Spiral curriculum. Yeah. We'll go over it again and yeah. expand upon it. That's right, we can expand, grow and progress. All right, so dopamine is important. It is, yes. Dopamine is produced largely by two parts of your brain. The substantia nigra. Yep. Which is important for coordination and initiation of movement. Yep. And which we will talk about when we talk about Parkinson's disease. Yep. And dopamine is also produced by the ventral tegmental area. Okay. And the dopamine that is produced by the VTA, as we call it, is important for learning about good stuff. Oh, Yeah. Reward. There you go. We have done this before. It's all in there somewhere. So what happens is the very first time you encounter an unexpected reward, right? Yeah. So you 
we'll use chocolate as an example. No, we won't. We'll, we'll use your flapjack as an example. All right? Yeah. Got a flapjack here. Samuel likes flapjacks. And I am hungry. The first time you had a flapjack. Yeah. And you didn't know what it was. Yeah. Hypothetically speaking. Yeah. Your brain made a lot of dopamine. Mm. And the reason for that is because other parts of your brain and your anatomy were uh, quite excited about the consequences of your having eaten a flapjack. Right. And because it's a very palatable, energy-rich food. Yeah. And it's an evolutionary advantage for you to eat flapjacks rather than lettuce. Yeah. So your uh, body as a whole is uh, it is in it your evolutionary advantage for your body as a whole to take note of everything associated with that flapjack such that you can repeat the behavior that you have just in, uh, engaged in, i.e. eating a flapjack. Finding the flapjack, buying the flapjack, eating the flapjack. Exactly. So what your brain does is it makes loads of dopamine, and that dopamine is the learning signal that allows the the other important parts of your brain to learn everything about the flapjack, the wrapper that it's in, how much it costs, whereabouts you purchased it from, the name of the shop, who was with you. Everything associated with that event becomes what we call salient and uh, you are therefore uh, able to learn about it much more easily because you've got this spike of dopamine. Mm. Okay? So um, the next time you encounter a flapjack... You get another spike of dopamine and mm. so on. Yeah. Okay. So eventually you learn what the flapjack looks like, what the what the good the thing looks like, where you found it, and all the rest of it. Um, once you've learned all those things, you no longer get the spike of dopamine when you eat the flapjack. Oh. Okay. So you get the dopamine when you have experienced a novel reward to allow you to learn about that reward. And eventually, once you've learned, you no longer get the spike of dopamine. What you get instead is dopamine released when you encounter those things which you have learned mean that the reward is going to be available. Ah. All right? So you see this wrapper? Yeah. Right, that I'm holding up? Yeah. From the student union. So you've eaten this type of flapjack many times before. Yes. I'm pointing it at you. Yes. Your brain is making dopamine. I can feel it. Yeah? <laughs> you yeah. feel it? Yeah. Does it feel good? Feels good. Um, getting really hungry now because you have learned the association between this wrapper and etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, one point one side note to mention briefly were I to give you this flapjack yep and were you to buy into it and discover that it was in fact cardboard yeah I tricked you that's you, like the sort of thing you do as well I'm, I'm not going to rise to that um you oh would, no, it's cardboard. What happens now? You get a reduction in the amount of dopamine swilling around your nucleus accumbens, etc. Mm. All right, because it's part of the learning process. If you are expecting a reward, then you get a spike in dopamine. If that reward is then no, not delivered, then you get a suppression of dopamine. And that helps you learn then that if Newton is offering you a flapjack, be wary because <laughs> it might be cardboard. Okay, okay. So you learn something new. So you'll learn about the events that are associated with the non-delivery or the non-encountering uh, of mm. the reward. All right? Clever, the brain. It is. It is. It's, it's where all the important stuff goes on. All right, so that's what happens with normal rewards. Right. Right? Every drug of abuse or every addictive drug, I should say. That was, a, oof, that was a bad thing for me to say. Every addictive drug, but not every drug of abuse, Every addictive drug causes the release of dopamine, and it does so through pharmacological mechanisms. All right, so psychostimulants block or reverse even the dopamine transporter, so you get the release of dopamine. Okay. Nicotine activates dopamine neurons. You get more dopamine, and opiates uh, inhibit the release of GABA onto dopamine neurons so that you get a double negative inhibition of inhibition yep and that result is more dopamine yep okay so every time a person takes an addictive drug they get a spike in dopamine and that then drives them to learn 
and be motivated to consume that drug in the future. All right, so you learn that the Stella logo is associated with uh, the availability of alcohol. You learn that you know a particular street corner is associated with the availability of certain drugs. Certain people are associated with you being uh, under the influence of drugs, etc. All right, makes sense. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So after a while, you then also get the learning-induced spike in dopamine. Right. So you see the Stella logo and you get the spike. You see the needle and you get the spike. But because the effects of drugs of abuse or addictive drugs on dopamine are pharmacological, you always also then get the spike of dopamine when you take the drug itself. Oh, yeah. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah. So you get these two spikes. Yeah. Which means that the learning becomes much stronger yeah. than it would be about a simple, humble flapjack. Yeah. And therefore, the person taking a drug of abuse is always, well, not always, person who is becoming addicted is very motivated to consume the drug and has learned very strong associations between their environment and um, the feelings that the drug will produce. I see, I see. see? Yeah. And in that way, the so-called dopamine hypothesis predicts that or suggests that addictive drugs hijack the brain's natural reward system and drive an aberrant learning that is too strong and the result is that you become addictive. I see. That makes sense? Yeah. Now, although there is a lot of evidence to support that hypothesis, it is not the be-all and end-all of addiction. Yeah, sure. Because um, I've shown you this flapjack. Yeah. Rally one more time for effect. And your brain has made dopamine. Yeah. And you are highly motivated to consume it. Yeah. And it has been sat on this desk for the hour that we've been sat here discussing the drugs of abuse. But you haven't come and taken it and eaten it. No. Why is that? Because then we wouldn't have a prop to use towards <laughs> the end of the podcast. Um, well, I don't feel, yeah. I, I'm not addicted to flapjacks. You're not. All right. Forget even addiction then for a second. Yeah. It was it would oh, be... because I have a level of control. Exactly. It right. would be impolite of me to come and wrest the flapjack from your hand and eat it. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a fairly complex thought that process that you have engaged in. I mean, politeness, obviously, not something that And you're bigger than me. <sighs> I'm not very good at fighting. <laughs> something that I hope I never have to uh, well we're academics it would be a bit embarrassing <laughs> we could rub elbow patches or something <laughs> so evolutionarily it would be to your advantage for you just to come and eat this yeah alright but you haven't yeah the reason for that is because in addition to activating your dopamine neurons uh, I have also activated your prefrontal cortex so your prefrontal cortex is this part of the brain that generates more complex thought processes, things such as, I'm not going to go and eat that because it belongs to somebody else. Okay. All right. Um, we group many of the behaviors of the prefrontal cortex together and describe them as executive function. All right. An executive function, and specifically in this case, involves two things. The first is you being able to control your urge to come over here and take the flapjack. Yeah. All right? Um, lesser animals would have difficulty controlling that urge. Like my mum's dogs at the dinner table. Exactly. So the urge itself, the impulse, the VTA, is generated by the VTA, the nucleus accumbens, and all those regions. They are evolutionarily very old. Okay, And they're very yep. important because they motivate all living, all sort of, you know, higher animals to learn about good things. Being able to withhold because it belongs to somebody else, that's a fairly complex thing that most animals can't do. Um, the second thing that your prefrontal cortex is doing is it's allowing you to arrange your long-term planning. Is right. it? It is indeed. Wow. So uh, I'm going to pretend I know exactly what you're thinking. Or maybe you can explain to us the detailed thought process about why you wouldn't come and eat this flapjack uh yeah i mean first of all i want to have some sandwiches and then i'll eat the flapjack don't know why 
I'm going to go out. And then I'm going to go for a swim. Right. So, yeah, I'm kind of, I'll probably even eat half the flapjack before the swim and save the other half for after the swim because I don't want to eat too much for the swim because it's not nice being horizontal with a belly full of food. Perfect. There, summed up very neatly, is long-term planning. Wow, my prefrontal cortex was doing all that. Pretty much. Bloody hell. If we were to stick you in the magnet right now, it would be uh, gleaming your prefrontal cortex. It would be lighting up the screen. So if you were thinking exclusively for the short term, if you're thinking for the next 20 minutes, you'd think, well, I'm going to eat the flapjack. Yeah. Simple as that. But you want to eat some sandwiches first. You want to go swimming afterwards. You don't want to eat all of it, et cetera, et cetera. You think planning for the long term. Yeah. That's part of executive function. Right. In addiction, that executive function breaks down to a certain extent. Ah. Okay. Um, What specifically breaks down is the enactment of the executive function. All right. So if you, let's say you are addicted to flapjacks, or let's pretend you're a cocaine addict and this is a bag of cocaine, you would in all likelihood, be able to articulate those same thought processes. You would be able to say, I don't want to eat the flapjack now, or I don't want to take the cocaine because it's caused me all these problems and because I don't want to go to jail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right? You know this is what you should do. But something goes wrong. Either the, the, the messages about those behaviors don't get through to the more uh, um, basic regions of your brain upon which, uh, through which your behavior goes, or the behavioral urge itself to take the cocaine is that much stronger in an addict than it is in someone who is not addicted, or in all likelihood it's a combination of the two. Right, right. Okay? So you have a much stronger urge and a much weaker ability to resist that urge. The net result is that the person finds himself taking the cocaine. Right even though they can tell you that they don't want to do it. So with addiction come those changes in behavior that we might recognize, and that's why. Yeah. Cool. Interestingly, and not often described even in the textbooks, there is a school of thought that suggests that such behavioral patterns exist before a person even ever takes an addictive drug for the first time. Wow, really? Indeed. So... The changes are not, in fact, changes. They are merely the expression of the person's actual, you know, behavioral phenotype. If we were to use an ugly mouse phrase, um, people who are more likely to become addicts in the future are people who, for example, are novelty-seeking or thrill-seeking, will engage in risky behaviors, not able to plan perhaps for the future as best they should, or don't account for the long-term consequences of their actions uh, as um, don't value them as much as someone who is less likely to become addicted. So, and there are certain behavioral disorders uh, which are characterized by problems in executive function and which are also correlated with an increased likelihood of later developing a substance abuse or addiction problem. I see, I see. So certain people may be um, cursed with an increased likelihood of developing addiction independent of them ever actually having taken an addictive drug. Wow, so there is some science behind that. There is. And understanding. The point being, and this is another thing that you will read and get the impression of uh, a lot through popular science and the media, that taking lots of drugs does not cause addiction. Yeah. Or not necessarily cause addiction. It will certainly cause lots of changes in your brain, but it, may not, it is not all that one has to do to become an addict is to take loads of drugs. In fact, another important point we should make the majority of people who abuse um, even very addictive drugs don't become addicted to them. Uh, I think the most, there are various ways you can measure how addictive a drug is. By many, if not most measures, nicotine comes out as the most addictive drug that there is. Yeah. And even then, about a third of people who take it once will de- go on to develop some sort of problem with it. Yeah. Which is still a minority. Okay. Am I losing you again? Are you no, no, I've heard that, that before. Yeah. Oh, is it me that said that before? No, oh, no, no. Popular press again, again or probably. Or... Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's very important. Yeah. Um, I think that's about all we have to say. 
Thank you. Hey, it was a pleasure. Do you want your flapjack now? Yes, please. <laughs> that was an awful throw. <laughs> it was an awful catch, you mean. It went out, yeah. Okay, so what are we doing next? Time. Movement, maybe. We should. At some point, we'll do movement. We'll, why don't we do movement after uh, I give the movement lecture to the current first years? Okay. Which will be um, sometime in February or March, I think. Okay, so sometime in the future, there will be another podcast about neuroscience from Phil Newton. There will be many. Oh, I could drink a lot of caffeine for that one. Thanks, Phil. Anytime.